Welcome back, my friends, to the skunk that never ends. So glad <laughs> you could attend. Come inside. It's uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer. Okay. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends, Carnival Night. All you had to do was say polloi. So glad you could attend. Come inside. Come inside. <laughs> All right. Well, we are back. <laughs> Wait, am I using that? Yeah. All right. You are now. Okay. So we're back for yeah. part two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yes. With none other than Jeff Skunk Baxter. Uh, been waiting a whole week for this. Yeah. Well, we covered the new album, which is really excellent. It's it's a, when I say a hard listen, not a difficult listen, but it's rocking at times. He has still got so much natural energy and aggressiveness in his playing when he wants it it's like i told him he sounds like a 20 year old at times in terms of energy yep it's, it's awesome it's the same with the writing so he and his partner cj where, where they wrote it's very good yeah um and where they've produced which is everywhere it's outstanding yep. as well yep. it's just good listen so so we got part two coming up right we do have part two so uh we spent most of the first episode talking about recent projects especially the new album right but then we finally decided, as is our want, to take Mr. Jeff Skunk Baxter into the Wayback Machine. Yes. Yeah, so Sherman and uh, what was the, the other dude's name? Mr. Uh, Peabody. Mr. Yeah. Peabody. Yes. Please, take us back. Getting to my next question while we're in the Wayback Machine, you spent a lot of time, obviously, in stable, well, semi-stable bands, too. So we know you spent the period uh, with Steely Dan. And so you get their glossary of ideas and, and feels. And then you move to the Doobie Brothers, who at the time, they were still doing their more Southern rock sound, the Stampede album. Yeah. And then, of course, you had to evolve through that, through what is known through yacht rock circles as the Michael McDonald era or the R&B era, the Blue-Eyed Soul. Now, through that period of, of the Doobie Brothers, was there a sweet spot, at least for you, that you enjoyed and thought like the vision that at least you had was starting to come to fruition because my guess would be like the Fault Line album, but I'd like to hear what you think. Right on the money. Okay. Right on the money because when I brought Michael into the band, it it was more uh, to keep the momentum of the band, and I because I had tremendous confidence in his in his musicianship when Don when Tommy Johnson had the his health problems yeah. and couldn't continue for a while. Uh, but bringing a keyboard player into an all guitar band changes the dynamic. Mucho, yeah. Uh, especially because I'm a chord guy. I just have a fan. You know, I have a jazz background and uh, a classic piano background. So chords to me are the essence. Anybody can play lead. BB mm. King said, "You're the best rhythm guitar player I ever heard in my life," and I took that as a huge yeah. compliment. Oh yeah. Wow. Um, but as we went into it, I started thinking, okay, there's this band, and including all the musicians that were there. Uh, Michael, but everybody else, the depth of, of talent in this band is deeper than the music that this band has already made. Hmm. So maybe there's a way to move this noodle hmm. forward. So yeah. I suggested to the band that the band start working as a rhythm section. We're going to book sessions for Leo Sayer and Carly Simon. Nicolette Larson. And, yeah. Uh, okay. Now Nicolette I got Larson. it. Yep. Yep. And, and, um, you guys are going to show up at 9 a.m., downbeats at 9.30. If you screw up, you're fired. That's it. That's the way it works. That's my world. <laughs> and that's my that's a Steely Dan world, but that's also my world. Mm -hmm. And they rose to the occasion beautifully. 
as a rhythm section. It was amazing to watch. And in the middle of the Living on the Fault Line album, Keith Knudsen turned to me and he said, I dropped a snare drum beat in bar 51. And I thought, bingo, everybody's got it now. They, they, they see this. And it, the, to me, the Living on the Fault Line album, it's not a commercial album. But the musicianship on that record and the playing blows my mind. I mean, that's the Doobie Brothers. And there are probably people who went, that's the Doobie Brothers. Right. right. Uh, okay, then that's fine. But just give some great musicians some slack to deep, to dig deep. And yeah, I would say that from my vision of what I thought that band could do was the Living on the Fault Line album. And that album had to be made to be able to get the band to do the Minute by Minute album. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned um, the Steely Dan way. It's a, if you'll forgive somewhat a loaded question, somewhat open-ended question. I just, you're the closest we've gotten to being able to ask somebody what it was like to work with Donald and Walter in the studio. And I'm wondering if that evolved up to the point where you end up then leaving the band. And we all know that what happened after that. So can you give us a sense for what it was like working with them in studio? Well, I left the band because they didn't want to tour. Mm -hmm. And I was already touring with the Doobie brothers. And when I hung up the phone, we were in a hotel room in London, I think. And I said, well, I'm not going to do the Doobie brothers. I mean, I'm not going to do Sealy Dan anymore. They don't want to tour. And in another femtosecond, they turned to me and said, well, you're in the Doobie Brothers now. <laughs> okay. Cool. Good. Because I like to play live. Yeah. But being a studio musician, again, I have no problem <clears throat> with trying to attain. Perfection is the wrong word. Uh, uh, I would say uh, if there is such a word as absolution, not being forgiven, but a tried to to attain a state of as absolute and complete as possible. So Donald and Walter were, you know, very uh, very focused on wanting to get as close to perfection as they could, and I got no problem with that. Mostly, there are performances that were lost because in the pursuit of that sometimes things get lost mm. but i would say for the most part the the architecture the structure of how to do that worked out very well and especially because R roger nichols who engineered all of those records just the unreal talent at engineer roger and i were good friends i miss him mm. terribly um and he was a science geek as well yeah, yeah. uh uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, a nuclear engineer, I mean, he ran a nuclear power plant. Uh, he, he, his vision of perfection in audio fit, I believe the mold of everything. So I, I didn't have a problem with it at all, frankly. And if they wanted to call somebody else to come in to play fine. Cause I knew all these guys anyway, 
and, and I was doing so many sessions. It's not that I didn't love being in Steely Dan and I didn't feel like I was a part of the band, but I didn't feel like somehow or other I was, you know, somebody was taking away my candy or anything. Uh, there plenty to do. And I was having a great time. Matter of fact, Steve Lukather and I were talking the other day. Uh, I think we're the only two guitar players who are both first call studio guys and in famous bands. Mm. Oh, well, we'll have to bandy that one through on the podcast, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. But so yeah. we, we try to, I, we, I, I only mentioned that not from a, uh, trying to be a conceited, you know, jerk. But it's a different perspective. It's a completely different. Yeah, But yeah. it brings all of that. It, yeah. it is a synthesis yeah. of all of that well, just, together. John, before you ask your next question, I, just want, I read yeah. somewhere recently where even Walter Becker himself replaced, he said, the minute I heard Chuck Rainey play, I realized I didn't need to be the bass player anymore. So he was not he on was everything. Fine. Right. Right. Yeah. He could step aside and bring other people in. So interesting. Well, the question I was headed towards that relates to Steely Dan is one of your production projects. And I know it's a long time ago and details we know can be lost sometimes. But what do you remember about the uh, production of Sneaker? Sneaker's debut album, which you produced, and you brought in a Steely Dan song on that. What is the genesis of that song? Was that something that the band had been working on was in like the back burner and never got cut by Steely Dan? Yeah. Because yeah. I know there's a demo. And so what was, A, what do you remember about producing Sneaker and then why that Steely Dan song, if you can recall? Well, a buddy it. of mine came to me with a demo of Sneaker and I listened to it and I said, okay, these folks are, they're not Steely Dan, but they are in the mindset. I mean, I had a whole library of steely dan stuff that was never recorded and so i went through it and i thought that would be a great song these guys would really do this and i thought this probably is a no-brainer for me i love the guitar playing as a matter of fact uh one of the guitar players was the uh a co-writer for the song insecurity on on uh, on this record i just when i heard it i said i i really want to produce this because these guys get it. So I that was a really enjoyable experience. And actually, the, the first album I ever produced, Paul Bliss, same way. These guys had thought this stuff through. Um, there was a band called Cruel Shoes, which I almost produced, and they sent me a demo. And again, same thing. They were really in that whole genre of, of the sort of Steely Dan architecture. So yeah, I I enjoyed doing sneaker, and we went we, we went to Japan to play, and we won uh, saw something at the Tokyo Music Festival, and it was pretty pretty amazing. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew. Ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. 
So you mentioned that you love playing out. I see you have an upcoming set of dates to support this record. Is that right? Yeah, we did a, 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 an East coast tour and, uh, that was kind of fun. We played the Birchmere in Washington, D.C. And uh, if they dropped a bomb on that, we would have lost half the DOD and the IC on that one. <laughs> it, was, it was fun to have all my friends yeah. there. And by the way, a lot of those guys are musicians. I mean, Dr. Edward Teller, the man that invented the hydrogen bomb, the man that I work with at, at, until he passed away at Lawrence Livermore, was a concert pianist. Um, Charlie Towns, a man that won the Nobel Prize for the laser, pianist. Uh, a, a lot of the people that showed up, General Jay Raymond, drummer. Uh, all these, there's a huge connection between music, frequency, the, the physics of the universe, et cetera, et cetera. So when these guys came to play, it was my colleagues, but it was also they were there to share uh, a, a sort of a commonality. So we did an East Coast tour. I went to play um, at the Iridium in New York, which means a lot to me because Les, Les Paul was an old friend, and I used to go, I used to go play with him uh, at the Iridium like once every two or three months, uh, and it was fun because I've been. I grew up, I grew up in Mexico City, but I was going to boarding school in Connecticut, so I would stay in the United States and work during my vacations and a lot of time in the summers. I was working in wedding bands, you know, back in the day, you're 13, 12, 13 years old. You're playing. I got a stack of fake books this high <laughs> because the accordion player is 90 years old. Sax player is 85. <laughs> the drummer's 90 and you're, tw- you know, you're 18 and, or 13. And you're, you play the one Chuck Berry song every 20 <laughs> songs for, yeah. the, for the, for the, for the kids, yeah, you know, yeah. so, but you're learning all the standards. So I remember Les called me one day. He said, skunk, I'm doing this VH1 special. Nobody's damn kids are in goddamn songs. I said, what's up, Les? He said, well, you know, I don't know any songs. I said, well, okay, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to do How High the Moon. I want to do On Green Dolphin Street. I want to do, you know, Take the A Train. I said, well, yeah, that's no problem. I know all that stuff. And you got to play bass. You're going to have bass players on any goddamn song. <laughs> so, it, it was funny because they would play with, a lot of guys would go play with Les. And Les was very uh very gracious and he would play anything and everything but when les and i got to play we would just start playing the standards there's a nice youtube video of myself and les playing at the house of blues doing uh take the a train just bebopping all over the place and having a great time and i i miss that so when i went to the iridium i closed my eyes and Mm. there was less of less on my shoulder you know yeah so we did the east coast tour did a midwest tour we went to japan toured that did a west coast tour and now we're going to do another west coast tour and i'm i'm i i don't understand the dynamics of what's happening with this record i i thought that songs like you know, uh, my old school and stuff would be radio friendly. Now we're we're on the charts in New Age with <laughs> oh, Giselle. Giselle, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh, smooth jazz with 
with uh, Juliet, with, um, Juliet, which is a tone poem. That's a tune that we wrote. CJ and I wrote, set the drum machine, and just we wrote the song. Wow! While we were playing it, same with Giselle. Oh my god! Um, I think the song with Clint Black is going to break in country. Nice. Uh, okay. Uh, great. I have no idea what's what's happening. So I think we're going to be touring more and more and more uh, as this this begins to evolve. So where are you guys located? We're in Detroit. Oh, so you're our bass player in our band is from Detroit. Hank Horton. Oh, do you know Hank Horton, Joe? I do not. No, no. Well, you should, because not only is he first called bass player, but he's the bass player for the Detroit Symphony. Ooh. Oh, wow. This guy is frightening. Wow. <laughs> As a player. Speaking of Detroit, on your website, I could have swore I saw a glimpse of a picture of you in Wally Palmer from the Romantics. Oh, yeah. I love Wally. Wally's a great friend. Ah, I bet. We've got something we in common. Good, because I've known Wally oh. since the 90s. So, interesting. Oh, what a great musician. And a great human being. Yeah, he is. We do a lot of charity shows together. We just have a lot of fun. Oh, cool. I got him a white Fender Jaguar because I want to see him <laughs> surfing it up, you know. <laughs> I'll keep an eye on him out here. Let you know if it happens. Yeah, yeah we don't uh, do yeah. a lot of surfing on Lake St. Clair, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you never know. I love surf music. I'm such yeah, yeah. a fan. Of, I play a lot with uh, Dean Torrance from Jan and Dean. See, Graydon, you know, get together with Graydon. He loves it, too, so. He go. loves it, and so does Billy Gibbons. I found that out oh, when we wow. did a show with uh, Steve Cropper. Um, God, can you imagine I was, I was up in the dressing room, and I was playing uh, a song I did with Adventures, Bombora. And Billy comes and says, what's that? I said, this is a tune I did with Adventures. He goes, I love surf Oh, my music. gosh. So maybe myself, Elliot Easton, Jay Graydon, Billy, we should form a like a four-masted schooner surf band. And then Tristan Bode and Michael McDonald can surf to you guys while you're yeah. while you're playing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, real quick, we only touched on what ended up being my favorite track, so I just wanted to bring it up because it's another sort of area that you explore and so many genres that you touch on. But you mentioned the Johnny Lang song, uh, I Could oh, Do yeah. Without. Is that Johnny Lang playing that guitar lead? Because it smokes. Well, we're doing call and response. Call and response. Okay, that's what I thought. Because we met in <clears throat> at Sundance, the film festival. They had put together a band. We all jumped on stage. We played for about an hour. I had a great time. And, and we ended up doing a lot of call and response just because somehow or other it worked out and felt good. So after that, I had, Johnny said, well, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm, a, I'm doing a solo record. Uh, but before that, he had asked me, he said, listen, uh, I know that you're in law enforcement. I said, yeah, I did. It was LAPD 15 years, a bunch of other things. And he said, I'd like to get into law enforcement. I said, ah, no problem. Uh, what do you want to do? I said, best thing for you to do would probably be to uh, be a reserve. I mean, you get sworn. You got to go to the academy, but uh, you could, you know, stay involved and not have to do it full time. I said, sure, I'll Tell me where you are. I'll call the local sheriff. You know, hey, it's Officer Baxter. I, you know, I got a recommendation for you guys. And uh, but then he started to really ramp up the music thing, and it, that kind of fell by the wayside. So then he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Solo album." And he, 
he said, well, I'd love to play on. I said, in a heartbeat. So he comes down to LA, same rules, right? Compose with myself and CJ and do something out of your wheelhouse. So we work on the track and it comes time to do a vocal. We don't have any vocal. We don't have any lyrics. So we tell, we tell him to go out in the studio, get in front of the microphone and scat, just make noises, vowel sounds and diphthongs, just scat along with the track. We recorded that. CJ and I then sat down with our rhyming dictionary and our thesaurus, et cetera, et cetera, and matched words to the vowel and diphthong sounds, wrote a set of lyrics, and Johnny came down and said, whoa, where'd you get that? I didn't sing that. And we said, sort of. Uh, and that's how that came out. And then when he heard the chorus... which is like thermonuclear, he said, wow, uh, that's that's me. I said, damn right. I mean, you're again, you're an incredibly talented musician. There's nothing you can't do. You know what I heard, John? I don't know if you heard the same thing, but I heard just maybe a touch of Ole Borud's most recent record on that track, or maybe some deep cut Ooh. Prince even, you know, where he likes to rock it and not release it as a single. Yeah, but you can hear a little bit of like the, the R&B funk underneath it, underneath the rock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. insecurity. That's our, that's our ode to R&D funk. The last one, I mean, you know, when I was looking at the song list and the Steely Dan tracks kind of caught my eye, do it again. And that is such a brilliant reimagining of that song, almost to the part where if you didn't know going in and didn't read that it was do it again, Becker Fagan, you almost wouldn't recognize it as the tune. And you could probably you probably could have gotten away with calling it your own composition. But <laughs> once you know that it's do it again and you're trying to search for the melody in there and then you find it, and you're like, oh, that is so cool. Well, again, CJ and I uh, thought, okay, let's reimagine this. First of all, I love shuffles. Give me a shuffle and I'm a happy camper. And we thought, okay, let's turn this on its head and see what we could do. And that's that's what came out of it. I, I love playing the song because it is a greasy, sleazy, slimy shuffle that just slimes its way from intro to end 
you know, I, I love it. I just love the shuffle. The, the different phrasing of the actual hook of the song, too, is what works so well. Right. Because you right. can't quite sing along to it, but you're like, damn, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I got, last well, it's a great song. A great song stands can out. can be yeah. interpreted in a number of ways. That's true. I just have one last question about your session days, because I was um, on your website, and you've got a, uh, a tab here that's called Interesting Stories. And... I would want, I wonder if you would retell the quick story about uh, your session. You got called last minute to do a Donna Summer session for the tune Bad Girls. And Hot Stuff. Oh, both. Okay. Yeah, mostly Hot Stuff because they were really looking. So, yeah, I, I, my, my assistant said, some guy named Giorgio Moroder called. I told him you weren't available. I said, we'll call him back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he, I spoke to Giorgio and he said, I want you to play on this record. Uh, Donna Summer. I went, Oh, okay. Who's that? That's great. You know, uh, let me look at my schedule. I said, what kind of music is it? He said, disco. I went, uh, okay. Well, uh, I said, call Jay Graydon. <laughs> Cause we've been, I mean, Jay and I used to go down to, to Marino's on Mondays and have breakfast and we decide what the one riff we were going to play on every disco record for the next week. I mean, I wasn't, we were not trying to be disingenuous, but it was really getting, you know, it was getting a little over the top. So I said, call Jay. Cause it's screw that call for skunk. So Giorgio called me back. He said, uh, I want you to play on this record. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's disco, buddy. It's rock. I want you to, I want you to make rock on it. And I said, okay, fine. So I, all my gear was in transition. I was moving and I just didn't have a guitar for that day. So I went down to guitar center, uh, and, uh, a buddy of mine uh, used to run the, run the place down there, Paul Herman. Actually, when I needed guitar parts, I would go down to guitar center to Paul's place. I'd find a nice guitar. I'd take it in the back room, smash it on the wall say, Hey, this is all screwed up. I, I can sell it to me for parts. And he knew exactly what was going on, but he didn't care. So I, I said, I need a guitar right now. And he said, well, there's this box in the middle of the floor. It said, buy me $35. There were about six guitars in the box. And one was a Burns Bison Jr. Had five regular tuning pegs, one other one. And so I grabbed it, tuned it up, plugged it in and said, yeah, this is great. Gave me the 35 bucks. Uh, put some new strings on it, grabbed a six pack of bud, headed down to <laughs> Rust Studios, and that's when we caught hot stuff. A and then Bad Girls, we did with the first iteration of the rolling guitar synthesizer Ooh. prototype. Oh, really? Yeah, the guitar solo on that is is the prototype guitar synthesizer. And of course, Harold Faltermeyer was total electro geek. Yeah. Loved it. Said, "Oh, we got to have that more, 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 more. How you make that work? <laughs> you know." So we, yeah, well, we spent more time programming it than we did playing. Of course. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how that worked out, and, and it worked out well. I think Hot Stuff really did jump the barrier between uh, disco and and rock. Donna loved it because she she was incredible human being anyway wonderful person amazing talent and again it was like out of her wheelhouse 
but she did the shit out of it. Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I'm glad you guys like the record. Oh, we oh my love gosh, the yeah. record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just so you know, do you know what Speed of Heat is? Uh, no. Something defense-related. <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, CJ is an aeronautic, is a, an aviation buff. And, of course, I spend a lot of time with things that are big and go boom and make boom and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So Hopefully not Speed here, of Heat. But yeah. Well, if we ever do a flyover, I'll let you know. All right. <laughs> um, Detroit's the first you know. on the list, so <laughs> I know we got to be careful. Well, I spent a lot of time at Wright-Patterson. We're not that far That's away. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at Mach 2.5, we're <laughs> really close. <laughs> um, so the speed of heat is the phenomenon that happens when aerodynamically and thermodynamically, when a, a body moves and approaches Mach 1, the speed of sound. So we started calling the record speed of heat as a working title when i when we sent it to the president of the record company he said i love the title of the record I said what's the title of the record speed of heat I said <laughs> okay uh, uh do you know what that is no but i love the title okay so speed of heat is like i said the, it's a an aerodynamic thermodynamic phenomenon now if you look do you have the album cover in front of you i'm looking at it right now okay look what do you see behind me it looks like some sort of diagram on a chalkboard, like the beautiful mind. Equations. Mm-hmm. So when I first released the record, I got a call from, yeah, I was at Northrop Grumman for 20 years working on, well, I can't say, but yeah. And so I get a call from my buddy at Northrop. He says, I know what those are. So those are ob- oblong pressure wave equations, right? <laughs> but that's it, boss, speed of heat. So just a little having uh. some fun. You know, a little little fun with the title. Yeah. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. Inside nerddom stuff that people love. That People that Absolutely. know love it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, the record does bring the heat. It is available uh, for purchase at your website. So if people want to get the CD, go to jeffskunkbaxter.com. When does the uh, – are the dates already kicked off? Or when do you go out of – Or tour? Spotify or Apple or whatever you want yep. to do. I don't want to right. limit anybody to it. Right. right. Yep, yep. Exactly. Uh, I've been spinning the crap out of it. So uh, Spotify, you. yeah. I got to get back to Detroit. I, my half, my half brother, buddy, sold me a Brooklyn many years ago, uh, which was made in Detroit and Canada. And I dropped a three fifty one Cleveland in it and uh, drove it down seventeen mile road. Yeah, uh, at about one hundred and thirty five before I hit the nitrous bottle. <laughs> yeah, and then got pulled over. Yeah, whatever. But yeah, I love Detroit. Yeah, look us up if you come by. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you. We and we will play. We played very close to Detroit not that long ago. I'm trying to remember where we were, but it wasn't that far away. Huh. Um, we'll come back. Okay. Yeah. Come Let back. us know when you do. Uh, good luck with the tour. The album. Yeah. Everybody's got to go out, spin it, buy it, download it. Whatever you got to do, you will love it. Um, there's something for everyone. There is. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it means a lot. I'm amazed anybody cares what I have to say. Or what I have to play, you know, I, I, it just humbles me. Hopefully, I will never have LSD, you know, lead singer's disease. So <laughs> I, I just and being a studio musician is a very good way to keep your keep your shit straight. Yeah, they don't care who you are, either you play it right or you're fired. And I think <laughs> yeah. there's something leveling about that. Well, yeah, 
And the requirement, like you were saying, of having to be on time and ready and all that stuff is not something that the prima donnas do. That's something that, no. you know, you uh-huh. once you learn that, you're an entirely different musician space than, you know, the band guy who just, you know, oh, rehearsal's at noon, I'll be there at three kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah, bass player. Yeah. <clears throat> Red light turns on and it separates the crop from the ice cream. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you for your hospitality, and I really appreciate the fact that you like this record, yep. and I'm always looking for input. I listen to everybody and everything because you never know where a good idea comes from. You may call me up sometime and say, hey, you should try this song. Yeah, I, I, I listen. Sure. You never know. So I'm standing by. As we say, rotor's hot. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right, Skunk, thanks again for coming on. Best yeah. of luck with everything, hey, and um, you just may just be hearing from us again. Sounds good. I'll be standing by. Well, all good things, even those that come in two parts, must eventually come to an end. Yeah, no third part on this one. No, but that was an amazing conversation with an amazing man and an amazing musician, and we're blessed to have had it. That was awesome. We may come back to it and get a third part out of him. Maybe a fourth part. You never know. That one, we're going to only talk about missile defense. There you go. Uh, We're going to reorient the podcast to season five. Right. (laughs) We're going to talk to him, Roger Nichols, (laughs) Nate Graydon. (laughs) All right. Uh, We'll just call it the Mad Scientist Podcast. And in that podcast, we will not have a lightning round. Would it be a meteor round? (laughs) Just hit the sound (laughs) effect. Ooh, that sounded right. like both. That could yeah. have been a meteor. All right, you get to uh, do Found at Sea okay. first time around here. Well, I'm going to reference back to a song I already brought up because it's the song that gave me chills when I was listening to it on the first spin. And that's the one that features Michael McDonald, My Place in the Sun. I feel like it's one of Michael's, I think I've said this, one of his best vocal performances in in, in recent memory. It's just they got a lot out of him. And what I particularly like is the call and answer section after the chorus at around 2.45 or so. Yeah, that sounds like it could be a Doobie Brothers cut, doesn't it? It does. Wow. Oh, together at last, together. as they say. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, well, the chills are subsiding, so that must mean the fe- fever is gone. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> What do you got for Found at Sea? Uh, last week, you, uh, well, I had a list for us last week, if you remember, and you kind of alluded to the drum list where we were a bit underwhelmed by the Berkeley drum faculty selecting drum grooves. Or I think it was, sure. yeah, I think it was listed as drum grooves. It well, was grooves, I and none a- of them were groovy. Yeah, I came across something else. Now, there's a software development company called ToonTrack, and they develop uh, virtual software instruments. Their primary flagship is their drum software, uh, which I do use. And they, I follow them on Facebook, and they posted the question. It is similar, and it asks for the most memorable drum fill or groove. It said the most memorable drum fill or groove is dot, dot, dot. Now, we're going to the people here. We're not going oh to faculty. We're going to the people. The faculty aren't people? Uh, <laughs> well, the, yeah. You know, when, when you're faculty, you have to try and act, come off smart, right? Right, yes. If you're a yes. person, you, you know, you just can give just them your opinion. So here, here, here's some of the great, I picked some of the best responses. Okay. It, it was a very good list. Um, very impressive. 
Uh, here's one that I don't know this one very well, but Calling Elvis by Dire Straits, which was played by Jeff Percaro, the mm, guy said. Okay. Uh, Walk This Way, Aerosmith, definitely. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. We're getting Toto, closer. Africa. Okay. Uh-huh. And they had Steve Gadd's 50 Ways. Of course. Um, when the Levee Breaks, there's a lot of Zeppelin you could have. Mm-hmm. See, uh, some guy said the solo or Phil's section at the end of Tom Sawyer. Okay. Yeah, uh, Tom Sawyer's iconic. How did that not make the first list, by I the know. way? Yeah. Um, Phil Collins in the air tonight. To me, that, that's that the, Phil. That Phil's got to be mm-hmm. the go-to, right? Yep. Uh, someone just wrote Purdy Shuffle. Oh, good for Thanks. you. Star for your forehead. Yeah, exactly. Funky Drummer by James Brown. I mean, the title sort of speaks for itself, <laughs> right? Yep. Come Together, Beatles. That's a right good now? one. Yeah. Yep. My Sharona. Mm. Interesting. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh. Uh, the another Zeppelin one. The um, intro to Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. That is kind of cool. Though. You'll like this one. Uh, Kenny Arnoff, Jack and Diane. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, I can air drum that fill like yeah. a mo. Fool in the Rain, another Zeppelin one. And We Will Rock You, Queen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so. Um, but as long as I scrolled, the one kept coming up over and over again. And I think it was the most popular response. Now, granted, this is not scientific, but the one I seemed to see the most was Rosanna. Rosanna. Finally. Yeah. For me, the first one that came to mind was, like you say, in the air tonight. Yeah. And, and another one that's just personal for me, and I'll play it here, is this opening fill to Chicago's old days. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On those dead heads. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that was the one for me. So. All right, I'll. I'll yeah. Anything popped to mind for you? Other than those, actually, Rosanna was the first thing that always yeah. popped to mind. But um, uh, there's an iconic one here. Just play. <laughs> I'm gonna make you go look for it. Uh, just a simple little lick in uh, the the uh, breakdown for the Colts. She sells sanctuary. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. All right, cool. Very good. All right. Buried treasure? Buried treasure. We talked to Jeff about what we thought, and we were right. His favorite um, Doobie Brothers album was, at least the one that he thought the, the concept that he had in his mind came all together, and that was Living on the Fault Line. And I think the most expansive track on that album, so probably the one he liked the most, would be the title track, Living on the Fault Line. So let's hit a little of that. Living on the Fault Remember the first time I heard that, I said, man, this is starting to sound like a Steely Dan album. <laughs> so, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. But uh, what makes this a bur- buried treasure for you? Because it is not a single. Okay. It's not a hit. Right. All right. Cool. I'll buy it. I'll all allow right. it. Um, all right. I'm going outside of the uh, the category here because I heard something the other day that I've listened to a million times but never heard. Our friend's Firefall, mm. the tune Mexico that you know I love. So it's yeah, not like I just heard a song the first time. <laughs> Check out at the end, there's always, you know, remember how in your head, can you remember how what Mark Andes is doing with the bass as that song's starting to fade out? Not offhand. Well, he's got this bass fill and you're going to hear it. And then the second time you're going to hear it again, Josh, or Josh, Jock doubles it and harmonizes it on the guitar and it's so cool and it's something that couldn't have been spontaneous but if it was it was brilliant let's hear a little of that (laughs) 
Well, I do know that the guitar lead was done as an overdub, but Jock did say that's one of the few times that he did the whole tune in one take. There were no punch-ins. Really? Yeah. So he nailed that the first time. Uh-huh. Ah, what if it was spontaneous or if it was like, I'm going to hit that harmony. And he didn't work it off. He had to know it coming ahead. Yeah. Very cool, though. That's cool, yeah. In something you didn't realize that you had heard before. Right, right. All right. Uh, I believe that takes me off the map. It does. So I'm going back to the Donna Summer album because um, the stories were hilarious that he told. Um, But I wanted to talk through just real quick uh, the personnel. So, Giorgio Moroder, who mm-hmm. was the one who made the phone call, right? Right. Um, Harold, Harold Faltemeyer on bass. Oh. Jeff Baxter. I think we interviewed him mm-hmm. on guitar. Um, Jay Winding on piano. Jay Graydon, Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar. So, he did rope in Jay's <laughs> one way or another. Just not on that cut. Uh, Gary Grant, Jerry Hay, and Steve Medeo. Is that how you say his name? I don't know. Uh, Bill Reichenbach Jr. Yeah. Um, so, that is just laden with... Yacht, yacht cred, yacht talent. Um, when you put it all together and you try to make a disco album, but then you throw Jeff Skunk Baxter on top ripping a rock solo, you get something like this. Rocking up disco. That's what he was. I mean, that's what got him to do it because he didn't want to go and do disco until Giorgio said, Oh, man, I want you to rock on my disco. Well, there it is. Wow. The song was not too slow to disco. No. Then it would have been yacht rock. Right. All right. What do you have for off the map? My off the map is completely unrelated. It's just something that had been in my list for a while. And, And every time this song comes up, I'm just so struck by the brilliance of great writing of melody. You know, we've talked mm. about that before. True. This is Melissa Manchester from 1975. It was written by her and uh, Carol Bayer Sager. So, Ooh. you know, that's why we have great melody in this song. But just notice the range and um, some of the interval jumps in the melody that just make this so beautiful. And this was a big hit for Melissa. So I'm not um, digging deep, but it is not a yacht rock song. So that's why it's in off the map. Midnight Blue. Wouldn't you get- the epitome of what we would have called adult contemporary songwriting at oh the time. yeah absolute perfection yes sir yes sir mm. very nice very nice so is it down to me then it is all right well um no i already did my off the map then just say polloi 